Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I came across a study about shopping. So that this study claimed that whenever we make a purchase, our brain releases endorphins and dopamine. We literally get high when we purchase something. When we open up that package and we find something new in our closet or elsewhere in our house, this thing, this new thing, literally gives us a buzz. Newness is appealing. But I think that the newness of our hearts is a lot more complicated. Do any of you remember what you did for New Year's? Do you remember anything about perhaps making some goals? And if you didn't, that's just fine. I always feel terribly anxious at that time of year. It's momentous, it's artificial. I feel bullied into thinking about how I should change my life. And when I do make those goals, I feel kind of depressed knowing that by January, I have forgotten them. And yet, when I hear those first lines from our second lesson today, my heart quickens with possibility. Listen again to those two sentences of our second reading. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. So what is the newness that you seek? I think it's pretty common among us. We all really kind of want the same things. We want our regrets to be banished. We want our bad habits to disappear. We want our memories to be transformed. We want our sins to be forgiven and forgotten. We want a springtime of the heart. I think that's why we're in church. Paul tells us that we are to regard no one from a human point of view. I think this is kind of funny. What are our options? We are human after all. What other, what other point of view do we have? Where is it? How do we obtain this? And we're told by Paul, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting this very message of reconciliation to us. Reconciliation is at the heart of this new point of view, and it's also our mission. In Greek as well as in English, this word reconcile has two ways it can go. It can describe money, it can describe relationships. 
In fact, the older use of this Greek word is indeed money changer. And what did they work with? They worked with balances. They would put foreign currency on one side to figure out what local cash would be given in exchange. The balance had to be equal. We still use that word of balance with our money. We balance books, we reconcile checks, checkbooks. We still have that sense of fairness. But it is more often used in our relationships. The ground between two parties has been made uneven. It's smoothed over by apologies and possibly even a gift. So we say, somebody owes me an apology. It evens out that balance. Even our legal system has those words in it. Someone pays a debt to society by going to prison. We also can note that the Hebrew word for sin means death, so it's not very far away from keeping that balance right that you put a tooth on one side and a tooth on the other. This is all a search for justice. We all know it falls short. It's not perfect. It's the best we've got for the moment. But what I have described to you right now is a human point of view. This is not what being in Christ is or having his perspective as ours is. This is not at all about a new creation. This is the same old system. Divine reconciliation is not transactional. When God brings about balance or healing and makes things right again, it's not about a quid pro quo arrangement. It is not a this for that. I think sometimes we would prefer if it was that way. We would like to believe that what we've done, those good deeds, would be on one side of the balance, and then the love of God would surely follow on the other side. But as soon as we start thinking about that balance, we're back into that human point of view. There is no better parable than the prodigal son to begin to see something different about reconciliation. We've had at least three stories before this story today that talks about loss. We heard last week about the tree of the lost cause, we don't get to hear about the lost sheep or the lost coin, so today is the lost son. But I think this parable goes a step further than describing that amazing search that God has for those who are on the edge. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me that share of the property that will belong to me. And so the father divided the property. This is a terrible story, and we can't forget it. This is more than being rude. He is telling his father to think of his death. He is reminding his father that the things that his father has worked on are more important than he is. And his father does it. He splits his property. That is plan A. This son is a man of plans. He gets the cash, he leaves, 
He spends it, it's all gone, and then he discovers he has no means to feed himself. So plan B comes along. Ah, he says, I will hire myself out. But he discovers plan B is not so good either. There is no living wage to be available. So as he is sitting in that pigsty, he gets plan C. And he comes to himself and says, okay, I've messed up. I will offer an apology to my father. I will offer to work for him as a hired servant. So far, at this point, we have a great understanding of human reconciliation in both money and giving an apology. I want you to let indulge me for a moment. I'm going to give you an alternative uh, parable at this point. These are my words. This is not scripture. But I want you to give it some thought. So we find the son in the pig pen. He gets himself up and he goes home. He knocks on the door of his old house. His father answers. The son offers an apology, said, I'm very sorry for what I have done to you and before God in heaven. I would really want you to, I would really like it if you would hire me to work on your land. His father welcomes him back, accepts that apology, and he says, yes, come, let me, let me introduce you to your brother who's now your manager. They later join for dinner. So this is it. Is this story unjust? What's wrong with this story? Or maybe I should ask you, would you want this to be the story that Jesus tells? You welcome your child home, and apologies are offered, apologies accepted. But I think there's something more going on in this story. This is not the story of forgiveness that is told by Jesus. So let us hurry back to Scripture. So while he was st still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. This astonishing parent sees his child far off, which means he has been looking out at the horizon, always with the hope of his return. He runs, embraces him, kisses him, and totally ignores plan C. The good feast is to be had, the best clothes, shoes, everything to welcome back this lost child. It is now, at this point, the son receives his real inheritance. It's not the stuff. It's being in the arms of such undeserved and unconditional love. In years past, I used to think that his conversion started in the pig pen. But no, it's still a transactional understanding of love. You behave and I'll love you. Apologize, I will forgive you. And for this, his son realizes that his, still rich, that his riches are still there for him. He now knows something of that profound depth of love that his father has for him. Now, we cannot ignore the older brother. He feels ignored. We're not going to ignore him. 
He's a sympathetic character in many ways. He's been working hard. He's been good. He hasn't spent his money on questionable activities. He's upset. He's not going to join the party. His father, not a servant, comes out and pleads directly with him, but he responds in this way. When this son of yours, not my brother, has come back and devoured your property, and he mentions the prostitutes, you, what do you do, Dad? You kill a fatted calf for him. Now, from the human point of view, he is rightly upset. He's no different, though, than the younger brother before he returned home. He just had a different plan. He's just as interested and focused on assets and not his father. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've been good. Yes, he has been working like a slave, but that's self-designated. That's his understanding. He's missed the profound love right next to him. Transactional relationships make us slaves and not children of God. They make us miss the love. You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. This is the divine point of view. Jesus came to change how we look at things. Jesus loves us so much that he lived a life forgiving people even when they didn't ask for it. In his tortured death, he did not abandon those who abandoned him. He didn't replace his love with a balance. He wants us to know that none of our actions of abandonment, of misappropriated affections, none of that, not even death, can separate us from him and his love. This love is not a love that waits at the top of the hill, looking out at the horizon. But it's a love that descended to live among us and even sit with us in our suffering, in our sickness, in our misery, so that he can tell us that he's with us, that you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Treasure this presence of God that is merciful and loving beyond our imaginations. Let us pray. Lord, help us to become ambassadors of this absurd and abundant love that you give us. Help us to forgive others with every breath we take, even when they don't ask us. Lord, strengthen us so that we reflect your grace and glory in all that we do, and never let us forget that you are always with us. Amen.